Esther is the story of a Jewish girl originally named Hadassah who became an orphan during the tumultuous years after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, carried all of its citizens away to Babylon as captives. Years have passed and Persia has now become the dominant world empire. And Esther has been raised without parents in that foreign land, keeping her Jewish identity secret all the while. Eventually, she is chosen by King Ahasuerus out of hundreds of young women to replace the rebellious Queen Vashti and this orphan girl named Esther ends up moving into the palace in Shushan. Esther is the story of one courageous young woman who risks her life to save her people from certain annihilation. Esther is the story of a great deliverance that gave rise to the Feast of Purim, which the Jewish people have celebrated ever since that time. And Esther is, above all, the story of God's intervention in human history to preserve his people, and it is the story of his direct involvement in one life to accomplish his eternal purpose. Your background, your circumstances, your family of origin, your life experiences, the comments of others, the insults of a few may have conspired against you to make you sit here this morning on a Sunday and think you're not very valuable. I come against that in the name of Jesus. God has a purpose for every single life. God has a cause for every person to get involved in that gives them meaning and affects the world around them. But there would be no girl named Esther without a man named Mordecai. He is named 58 times in this book. Mordecai was from the tribe of Benjamin and probably a descendant of King Saul. But that distinguished heritage did not spare him when those days of conquest and captivity came. However, Mordecai had prospered in the land of Persia and because his Jewish identity was also kept secret, he was eventually given an official position in the government, most likely as a judge because the record says he sat in the king's gate. But none of that would have mattered very much at all were it not for Mordecai's greatest act of compassion and dedication. That good man spent a lifetime raising that young orphan girl, his cousin Esther. And we pick up the story in chapter 2. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. A time of incredible tumult and, and issue and problem in Israel. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. And the maid was fair and beautiful whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took as his own daughter. 
Later, when Esther was brought to the palace among hundreds of young virgins to spend 12 months in preparation for one night with the king, Mordecai made it his business to walk every day in the garden outside the court of the women's house just to check on his adopted daughter and see how she was doing. Mordecai was always there for her. He was always concerned about her. And he was always giving her wise counsel. And thankfully, the Bible tells us that Esther listened to his voice as a young woman, just as she had when she was a young child. The Bible tells us that she had not yet showed her kindred nor her people. She hadn't identified her heritage as a Jew because Mordecai had charged her not to do so. Watch this. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. She esteemed that elder. She esteemed that cousin of hers who was like an uncle to her. No doubt it was Mordecai's advice and his influence that caused Esther to conduct herself differently than every other young virgin who went before the king. After a year-long regimen of purification, each woman was given whatever she wanted to wear for that one night with the king. She could pick from the finest of clothing, the choicest of jewelry, Whatever selection of perfumes, cosmetics, and colors she wished to use to try and impress the king on that one momentous night in her life. It was like sending your daughter to Walmart with an unlimited credit card. Except this was slightly better than Walmart. The Bible says, Thus came every maiden unto the king, Whatsoever she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. Now, whether it was by intent or just instinct, Esther decided to go a different route than every other young virgin. When it came time for her royal appointment, she didn't try to impress the king by wearing the outward trappings of fabricated beauty. Instead, she took a minimalist approach. She, re she required only what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, suggested for her. And Esther's natural beauty was breathtaking. Not only was the king smitten with her, the entire court looked on Esther with favor. Somehow, that young orphaned Jewish girl, that young maiden at an incredible moment of destiny when the fate not just of her but the fate of her entire nation would be decided. Thankfully, she understood this principle that when the king has everything, the only thing you can give him is yourself. He already had everything else. All those other maidens that put on the dresses and the jewelry and everything else that the king had supplied for them that were sitting in the women's house, all of those women, they missed the point. 
that the king already owned all the dresses and all the jewelry and everything else he had supplied. He already had that. He didn't need any more of that. He wasn't all that impressed with that. That was just a tiny piece of his wealth and his kingdom and his domain. But what the king was after was a queen that would show him a totally different response than the rebellious Vashti had shown him. When a king has everything, you can't give him enough to impress him. But you can give him yourself. Now I think you are smart enough biblically to understand exactly where that road leads. That when the king of kings already owns the trees and the mountains and the lakes and the streams and the land and the air you breathe, there is nothing you can give him that would add honor to him. There is nothing you can do for him that would make him feel better about himself or make him more magnificent. But there is one thing that he doesn't have by his own design. He made you a creature of free will. He made you a creature who determines your own destiny. And so the only thing that the king doesn't have that you could possibly give him is yourself. And that's why we choose among the millions that inhabit our planet, among the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, that are quite terrified and confused and frustrated right now in the midst of a worldwide pandemic that still affects us so drastically. That's why we choose this morning to pack up our little self and get in whatever mode of transportation we own and get to the house of God because the one thing we can give this king of all the universe is not more money, it's not more property, it's not more power, it's not more majesty, but the one thing we can give him that he really wants is to come into his presence and begin to love him, begin to honor him, and begin to worship him. See, the only thing you can give the king is yourself. The Bible says that Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. She impressed the daylights out of the court of the king. Now I look around today and Beverly has told me I'm not allowed to say this and this is why I've said it every service since she told me. I am not allowed to say this, and we'll sort that out. Pray for us. Some of you, I look around, and you look a bit old around the edges. And so I don't know if you remember when you were courting. Does anybody here remember how it was when you were courting? Yeah, see what I mean? And the people that did raise their hand, they're going, The countless little acts of kindness and the myriad heartfelt expressions of love. And all around you, you were just like every other couple that was courting. Everybody around you thought you were just a tad excessive and a little over dramatic and overblown. And some people looked at you when you were courting and they thought that is outright embarrassing. And we all went through it. And you know what? None of us cared. We didn't care about their opinion or their attitude. We, we didn't care about anything that they could comment or, or mock or make fun of. You know why? Because we were in love. That's why. 
And Esther's story takes that to a whole new level. Can you imagine this? An entire year of preparation for one night with the king. Jeannie Tenney wrote a song several years ago that simply says, One night with the king changes everything. One day in his courts can forever change my course. One moment in his presence, and I'll never be the same. One night with the king really changes everything. You see, when you were courting, when you were trying to impress that one, you didn't care what everybody else thought because you weren't picking up those flowers for them. You weren't writing that sappy card for them. You weren't doing all those random little acts of kindness and buying little knickknacks and trinkets that meant nothing and you spent way too much money on them, but to impress your beloved, you would do anything. It wasn't for them. Can you imagine Esther during that year if somebody accosted her in the court of the women and said, you know, you're really kind of going to a little bit of an extreme. All the other ladies are doing it this way and you're over here and you're taking this minimalist approach and, and, and you're not doing what they're doing. And, and, and what do you think? And Esther would reply to you, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for my opportunity to be in the king's presence for one night. I don't want to be beautiful for you. You may think the way I do it is odd. You may think the way I dress is foolish. You might think the way I act is some kind of crazy, but I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for the king. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm trying to impress the king. John wrote these beautiful words in two of his three epistles. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. There are a lot of people today that will just talk your ear off about how much they love Jesus, but they are a novice when it comes to actually keeping any of the commandments he's given us in his word. John wasn't content to say it once, he said it in the next epistle. And this is love that we walk after his commandments. And then that old elder at the end of the first century, when things were shaking and quaking and changing, he said, this is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. John warned them at the end of the first century, there's going to come people along that say that doesn't matter anymore. There's going to be a lot of voices that say that's not an issue anymore, but I'm here to tell you, as you heard it in the beginning, you need to keep walking in it because this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Don't tell me you love him if you don't keep his word. Don't tell me you love him if you don't obey his commandments. Esther's relationship with the king ended up affecting the destiny of an entire nation. So this is more than just a love story. This is a deliverance story. Esther doesn't have the power to deliver her people on her own. But listen, the king has the power, all the power of an empire behind him. The king can speak one word and change 
everything. But the king doesn't act until Esther goes and talks to him. Now Esther has hardly moved into the palace. She hasn't even got unpacked yet before we're introduced to Haman. He's described as the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Most likely he's a descendant of Agag who used to be the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were an enemy that God told King Saul many years before to destroy. But Saul refused. And now an Agagite, a descendant of that king, has risen one more time to try once again to annihilate the Jews. And that's why the book of Esther explains the origin of one of the beautiful Jewish holidays, the Feast of Purim. The word pur means lots in the Hebrew tongue. It refers to the casting of lots, the casting of dice by Haman for a cruel purpose to determine the day of the year that the Jews would be slaughtered. Haman's hatred for Mordecai and his deceitful manipulation of the situation ensured that a decree of destruction was issued for every Jewish person who lived in Persia. And it could not be altered because according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, if a law ever made it on the rule books, it was permanent. It could not be changed. And so the Jews knew that their destiny was to be robbed and slain, all their property confiscated, all their families massacred in just a few months. I don't know if you know this or not, but Hitler banned the reading of the book of Esther in the World War II concentration camps. You know why? It's because the Jews who were imprisoned and so horribly mistreated in those concentration camps they referred to Adolf Hitler as Haman. And they called all of his top leaders the Amalekites. And the reason they did that, it was one little act of determined rebellion to say, those two enemies of God's people, they met their end. And Hitler, you're going to meet your end as well. Hitler's gone. And the precious Jewish people are still here on God's green earth. And they are our friends in this city and we love them very much. Neither Haman nor Hitler could destroy God's chosen people. But it all met in a stalemate until this happened. God, then and now, was looking for a person that he could use to accomplish his purpose. God doesn't act in an arbitrary way. He looks for people who will follow him and love him and serve him and speak for him. And he uses people like you and me and Esther to accomplish his purpose. Esther was afraid of her destiny. Kathy, come on back. Esther was afraid of her destiny. She was new in the kingdom. She had basically just become the queen. She knew what had happened to the previous occupant of her position, Vashti. And so when it came time and the decree of Haman became known, 
And the whole Jewish community is buzzing about it in Persia. Did you hear what Haman got passed in the law books? We're going to be destroyed. It's certain death. It's certain destruction. There is no way out. There is nothing that can be done to turn this around. Nothing. Zero. It's a dead end. It's impossible. It's tragic. But there's nothing we can do to stop it. And that's when Esther's elder cousin, that good man named Mordecai, he decided he had had enough. And he went to find Esther. Because Esther was kind of toying this idea in her mind that maybe if the worst case scenario happens and all my nation, all my people are destroyed, maybe I'll be safe because I live in the palace. Maybe I'll be safe because I'm the queen. Maybe I'll be safe because the king told me he loves me. And that elder cousin of Esther, he found her on the palace grounds and he told it to her just like it was. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. When it happens to them, Esther, it's going to happen to you. When destruction comes for them, destruction's going to come for you. When trouble comes knocking at their door, don't you think you're going to escape? Trouble's going to come knocking at your door too. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, if you zip your lip, Esther, and you refuse to speak up, God's still going to get his will done. God's still going to deliver his people. God is still going to do the miraculous. But Esther, you will have missed your moment in the kingdom. And why in the world would you ever do that? If thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews. Horrifying words here. From another place. It'll come. God will do it. It'll eventually be okay. But you'll miss your moment. You'll miss your opportunity. You'll miss that divine destiny that God crafted for you. When you, a mere human being, can stand up and be the catalyst for deliverance in your generation. Thou and thy father's house will be destroyed just like everybody else, Esther. But Esther, don't miss it. Don't be so worried about your safety. Don't be so preoccupied with your outcome. Don't be so fixated on getting what you think you deserve out of this situation that you miss your moment. Because who knows whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I address people in this building that I love and esteem very highly. I address our CCC family, wonderful, faithful, dedicated, prayerful people of God. And I address all of our guests that are with us today. And we're so grateful for your presence among us as we worship. We're so grateful for everyone watching online this morning. But I address you too. God wired you 
and crafted you and knit you together in your mother's womb. And he did not do that so you could be a drug addict. And he did not do that so you could be a stumbling drunk. And he did not do that so your mind could be tied up with perverse things. And he did not create you so you could wander your life empty, meaningless, void, one pleasure to another, one party to another, one relationship to another, one event to another, one habit to another. He did not create you for that. I address you people that I love today and I say to you collectively and individually, who knows? (laughs) But whether you are come to God's kingdom for such a time as this. I don't know if you've looked around lately. But Peter and Paul and James and John are gone. So God decided he could have an end time church without the first century apostles. I don't know if you've looked around lately. But our esteemed elders, many of them, even most of them, are gone. And God decided that the church that would face down the rapture wouldn't have them on this planet in it. God decided that generation would be you and me. God decided that there was enough in us and he was enough for us that in the middle of a pandemic and in the middle of something far worse, panic, and in the middle of the end times, and in the middle of the last days, and in the middle of wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and plagues and all kinds of nations against nation and all kinds of confusion, God decided that we would be the end time generation and the last days church. So you may not have much confidence in yourself, but God votes his vote of confidence over you. And I say, who knows, but whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Somewhere out there, there's another apostle Paul. Somewhere out there, there's another apostle Peter. And maybe you're the one that will give the witness to them that brings them into the kingdom. Or maybe that's you. And God votes for you like Mordecai voted for Esther. And I don't think that makes you special. Don't think that makes your life problem free. Because whenever God gets ready to elevate you, it always seems like he introduces an enemy. You thought it was just you. Now nah, it happens to everybody. You thought it was just you that the devil attacked so viciously and unkindly and cruelly and without any kind of of respect for the rules of engagement. No, no, not just you. It happens to all of us. Oh, I know we all have different things to deal with, but don't think you're special. Whenever God decides he's going to elevate you and anoint you and use you, he always seems to let an enemy kind of come around. And you hear me this morning, you will not win any battle with your enemy by relying on your own strength. But here's how you can win every battle against your enemy. It's because of your relationship with the king. Esther didn't go toe to toe with Haman on her own. She got the king involved. And when the king got involved, the enemy was defeated. You say, but pastor, my enemy is big. Okay. The size of your enemy 
is a measure of the size of God's confidence in you. If God only gave you a little enemy, feel sorry for yourself. He doesn't trust you very much. But if you've got some massive issue, some great perplexing problem, some horrible sickness, some deep dark valley that you're trying to negotiate while serving God, then you deserve a pat on the back today because the size of your giant, the size of your enemy, the size of your situation is in direct proportion to God's confidence in you. And I got one more. And the power of your battle, the power of your problem, the power of your enemy is minuscule compared to the power of your king. Oh my goodness. So here's what you got to learn to do, and I'm finished. You got to learn to do this. If you don't learn to do this, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a disaster. You're going to be in and out and up and down like riding a Pentecostal roller coaster. Every little wind of doctrine, every little problem of life, every little opposition from people, and you're going to flip upside down and be in despair all the time. Your emotions are just going to be like a pogo stick. But you got to learn this little skill. David learned it. Esther learned it. When she got pushed and her people were in trouble and she knew that the outcome was not going to be good. You know what she did? <laughs> she called the king and Haman to the banquet table. And Esther sat down at the table with the king on one side and her enemy on the other side. She invited her enemy to the table just so there would be no mistaking that Haman had no power compared to the king. David got this. David learned to worship with the enemy sitting right at his table. Psalm 23, verse 5. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My enemies are all around me, God. My problems will not let go of their grip on my life. But God, I'm not looking around for my most terrifying enemy. I'm looking around right now for your table. I know it's here somewhere. I know you prepared a table where I can call the king and the enemy, the king and the problem, the king and the sickness, the king and the opposition to the same table. And when the dust settles, it's not going to be my enemy that wins. It's going to be my king that wins. Oh, my goodness. I'm done. If your enemy is the king's enemy, then the battle you're in is the king's battle, not yours. If you're fighting the devil and sin and hell itself right now, those enemies are the king's enemies. And if your enemy is the king's enemy, then you need to lift up your head and put a smile on and you need to look up and trust God and worship Him despite your aching heart. Because 
if your enemy is the king's enemy, then your battle is the king's battle and he is going to see you through. And who knows whether you, yeah, little old you, are come to the kingdom for such a time as this that it's going to be your prayer, your testimony, your faithfulness that makes the difference for somebody else. I have finished preaching, but the Lord is not finished moving. So right now, I'd like you to lift up both of your hands and all of your voice and talk to Jesus right now because for somebody, this service, this message, this moment is for you because destiny rests upon you. You weren't designed to be a backslider. You weren't created by God to be a lethargic, apathetic, apostolic person. You were created created by God with destiny written all over your spirit. You were created by God to know your God and do exploits for his kingdom. You were created to speak up for the almighty in a time of trouble. Let that worship roll out of you like a river. Let that worship roll out of you like a river. And they both Sabah Yes, 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 yes. Some are already, and I thank you for that. As an act of defiance against the enemy, as an act of defiance against the problem. And as an act of surrender and worship to your king, I'd like you to stand to your feet and let your voice out and give God great praise in this building. This enemy is not gonna be the death of me. This sickness is not gonna be the end of me. This trial is not gonna turn me back. This situation is not going to be my epitaph. The king has the final word over my life. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Music team, assemble if you would. We're going to need you in a minute. Now, COVID. I am so tired of COVID. But we still got COVID kicking around. So I can't come down there and lay my hand on you. But if you take your hand and lay it on yourself right now, everybody, and just act like it's pastor or one of the saints that just laid their hand on you to pray for you. And right now, I want you to pray for yourself. That's not selfish. God has destiny written over your life. So just pray for you. God, on my job. God, with my family. God, in my neighborhood. God, in my sphere of influence. Jesus, I am more than just somebody else. I come to your court with intention. I come to your presence with desire. Jesus, I have come to the kingdom for your purpose for such a time as this. The enemy comes in like a flood, but I'm...